This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Connor Pope. Today, 48 hours that brought Boris Johnson to the end of the line. Boris Johnson is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. Boris Johnson being elected Tory leader just three years ago. We are going to rise and ping off the guy ropes of self-doubt and negativity with better education, better infrastructure, more police, fantastic full-fibre broadband sprouting in every household. After Theresa May's somewhat robotic leadership style, Tory MPs hoped his big personality would energise them. But for every success, there was a scandal. And in the end, the scandals caught up with him. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. In most cases, the thing that's really uh, damaged him is not so much the scandal itself, but the way he's handled it and his reluctance to tell the truth. Dennis Staunton is London editor of the Irish Times. Dennis, this week an entirely new scandal engulfed Boris Johnson, and that was the one that did for him in the end. And it started with a Tory MP called Chris Pincher. A key ally of Boris Johnson, and he was a key member of his government until yesterday, of course, when he dramatically quit as deputy chief whip. Now, that was because he was accused of groping two men, as you say, at a private members club. The scandal grew when questions were asked about why a man like Pincher was ever appointed to the role of deputy chief whip in the first place. Some 14 more allegations spanning a decade have surfaced. On Friday, number 10 said that the Prime Minister knew no specifics about Chris Pincher's alleged behaviour when he made him Deputy Chief Whip. But that denial fell apart in spectacular fashion on Tuesday. What happened on Tuesday, Dennis? On Tuesday, Simon MacDonald, who had been the uh, permanent secretary, the top civil servant in the Foreign Office at the time that Boris Johnson was Foreign Secretary, he went public and said not only was Boris Johnson aware of previous uh, actions by Chris Pincher, but that when Chris Pincher was in the Foreign Office as a junior minister under Boris Johnson, that there had been formal complaints about him, that there had been a process where they had investigated the complaints and found that the complaints were upheld, but that no further action was taken because the person who was the victim of this had decided not to go any further with it and that uh, Macdonald knew he said that Johnson had been personally directly briefed about the outcome of all of this. I know that the senior official briefed the Prime Minister in person because that official told me so at the time. So there's no question in your mind that Mr Johnson knew in person, had been told in person about what happened at the Foreign Office. Correct. And so he knew what had happened. And what this did was that it made very public the fact that Boris Johnson, first of all, knew about uh, Chris Pincher's previous behaviour. And in fact, everybody knew he knew because Chris Pincher was one of his closest allies. And so he knew him very well. And also Chris Pincher, frankly, had a bit of a reputation around town. You'd really have to not know Chris Pincher very well not to know that there were stories around about him. And so secondly, it was clear that the stories that Downing Street was telling the press and the stories they were sending ministers out to say on the radio and on the television, these were just not true. And Boris Johnson Mm. had had to change his story and shift it, first of all, to say that he wasn't aware of any allegations, then that he wasn't aware of any specific allegations, then that he wasn't aware of any serious specific allegations, then, yes, that he might have been aware of some allegations, and then, yes, he was aware of these allegations, but he had forgotten. But isn't that kind of straight out of the Boris Johnson playbook? Because, as you say... He was routinely 
saying something and then saying something different over the course of all the Partygate scandals. So what was different about this particular scandal when there have been so many others in, in the recent past? One thing that was different was that he was sort of caught bang to rights, that it was pre- that it was clear, it was there in black and white, that we had the evidence that uh, you didn't have to wait for any inquiries or investigations. Mm. It was clear. But I think the main thing was, it's the cumulative effect of all these things. Conservative MPs are worn out from having to go and defend the indefensible day in, day out, month in, month out, over the parties, over the wallpaper, over uh, Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle, and now over Chris Pincher. And each time, that they have to do this. What Boris Johnson says to them is, I'm going to sack a load of people in Downing Street and we're going to have a total reset. It's going to be a totally different operation. I really don't know how these people were behaving in this way, but it's going to be all brand new. And each time you get a new crew and it's the same thing happens. And of course, the problem is not the crew. The problem is the man at the top. The problem is him. And also what you had was this humiliation of ministers going out onto these TV and radio programs and spouting these lines. And eventually they got to the point where the lines were being contradicted so quickly that they would go out and they wouldn't even pretend that they were anything other than lies. And they would say, instead of saying, this this has happened, they would say, I have spoken to Downing Street and they have told me that this is what they assure me has happened. One wonders why the Prime Minister gave him a job. Well, look, it's, it's a fair question, and, and I, I anticipated that, and I, I spoke with Number 10 both yesterday and today, and I've, I asked them firmly and clearly for an answer on this, and I've been given categorical assurance that the Prime Minister was not aware of any serious uh, specific allegations. So these ministers themselves had started to distance themselves from their own words, and so this became just all too much. Throughout the day, Simon MacDonald had uh, you know, created this whole storm and so it, 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 suddenly the crisis was back up and it was hot again. But then suddenly, shortly after six o'clock, Boris Johnson went out, he gave a broadcast clip where he said he was sorry. Yes, I think it was a mistake and I apologise for... And he admitted that he had forgotten about all of this and he was going to, everything was going to be OK. Did you want to joke, though, pincher by name, pincher by nature? Well, what I can tell you is that... Uh, if I look at the back. But he hadn't even finished speaking when the news came that Sajid Javid had resigned as health secretary. And a few minutes later, Rishi Sunak resigned as Chancellor of the Exchequer. The Chancellor saying the public rightly expect government to be conducted properly, competently and seriously. I recognise this may be my last ministerial job, but I believe these standards are worth fighting for. Both of them uh, wrote these letters and in each case, they really denounced the Prime Minister's behaviour and they said, essentially, we've remained loyal, we tied ourselves in knots for you and we can't do it any longer and this is now untenable and you've got to go. And what prompted them to have this sudden ethical awakening? Because, I mean, there have been criticisms of senior Tory ministers in the past for standing by Johnson. You make a very good point. And uh, I think ethics was probably one factor in it, or it might have been, but then self-interest might have been another. What was clear uh, being around Westminster during the day on uh, Tuesday was the tide was going out on this premiership that one way or another, it was very hard to see how Boris Johnson was going to come back from this, how he was going to, to, to get his old bounce back. And so then the question really was, why wouldn't you leave? You know, what's the advantage 
in terms of your own career in clinging on to this ship, which is obviously keeling and it's going to it's going to go down, if not this week, next week or next month. And so why not jump off now and get first mover advantage? And in fact, in both cases, I think they did do that. So first of all, Sajid Javid mm-hmm. was able to present himself as being a man of honour, as being a person uh, for whom integrity was more important than anything else. And so that he's, a sort of, you know, if he's going to be putting his hat in the ring for the leadership, which he will be, that he's uh, going to be the integrity candidate. And then Rishi Sunak, who had been riding high in the polls a few months ago and then took a tumble uh, because his wife had had some questions about her tax status. He handled those questions in a rather sort of a snippy, thin-skinned sort of a way that made people think he wasn't necessarily ready for prime time. And then he also uh, had been a bit unpopular because of his economic policies. He in his letter, he made a policy distinction as well. And he said, you know, part of the problem with this government is you won't tell the people the truth. And you won't tell them that if you want to have tax cuts, then you're going to have to have cut public spending. And if you want more public spending, you can't have tax cuts. And so he's, again, presenting himself, sort of relaunching himself uh, as a potential candidate. And in both cases, I think it probably has worked to their advantage. Now, then all through Tuesday and Wednesday, In Downing Street, the mood music was defiant and the message was that Boris Johnson was staying. Does the Prime Minister think there are any circumstances in which he should resign? (laughs) Frankly, Mr Speaker, the job of a Prime Minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going. And that's what I'm going to do. And one of his main arguments was that he had this 14 million strong mandate from the British voters. That was kind of a weird argument to make, wasn't it? Because the British Prime Minister isn't a president and he's appointed by his colleagues. How did the argument go down in the end? It went down very badly. Constitutionally, as you say, it's complete nonsense because, uh, you know, in fact, there is not even in, uh, properly a general election in a sense in Britain. You have, you know, 650 individual elections in constituencies of MPs and those MPs then go and they form a government and the leader of the biggest party becomes the prime minister. And so it was nonsense constitutionally, but it was quite revealing because it told us really what Boris Johnson thinks in terms of what his mandate is. And that's something that the Vote Leave crew throughout from 2019 onwards, uh, it was part of their line, which was, first of all, that the referendum vote in 2016 trumped all other elections. And secondly, that his mandate in 2019, combined with the referendum result in 2016, that that trumped everything, and it trumped almost any democratic checks and balances. And so, in other words, he was claiming to have a direct relationship with the people. I stand for the people, and you are this metropolitan elite, you are members of parliament and you have no right Mm. to try to override my mandate from the people. It's very Trumpian, isn't it? I think it's very Trumpian. Now, uh, people here in London hate you saying that. They don't like the compar- comparison. But it's, uh, but the comparison with Donald Trump and the comparison with Viktor Orban in Hungary, those comparisons have held for quite a long time. And Boris Johnson is a populist in the same way insofar as he is impatient with the Czechs on his power, on his personal power, mm. and always has been. And, and right up to the end, Boris Johnson did give the impression that he, like Samson in the temple, was prepared to pull the house down 
with him. There wasn't really a care for the the norms and the niceties. And because Britain doesn't have a written constitution, or rather the constitution isn't all written in one place, it depends to a huge extent on norms, on what they call the good chaps theory of basically the assumption that everybody's going to behave like a good chap and sort of go by the rules. And if you have somebody who's a very bad chap like Boris Johnson, that can really be very dangerous in a system like this. But ultimately, I suppose the good chaps, if we want to call them that, triumphed because, you know, Johnson is gone or at least will be gone soon. But before he went, there was this extraordinary wave of ministerial resignations. Has there been ever a week like that in British politics that you can recall? No, nothing like this. I mean, there were more than 50 MPs resigned from the government within the space of about 24 hours. And the desire for him to go goes across all wings of the party. And most worryingly, earlier today, I mean, you had people like Lee Anderson and Jonathan Gullis. I mean, they were jaw-dropping to me, Mark, because... Boris Johnson was out in the House of Commons, first of all, at Prime Minister's questions, being defiant, saying he wasn't going to go anywhere. And then at this liaison committee, which is a committee where all the chairs of all the House of Commons committees were there. And they were all quizzing him. And once again, he was saying no intention of going. And then finally, he went back to Downing Street in the evening. There waiting for him were various of his colleagues in the cabinet. And they went in one by one. And they said, you need to go. It's all over. And these were people, again, very close to him. Priti Patel, the Home Secretary. Uh, people like Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary. And Grant Shapps, throughout all of Boris Johnson's troubles from his election campaign onwards, he, Grant Shapps, had a spreadsheet of all the MPs in the party, what they all thought. And he went in and he said, you know, I know where these people stand. They want you to go. And if there's a vote of no confidence in you, they're going to get rid of you. So why not go now? Mm -hmm. And so you had all of these people. One of the people who told him he should go was Nadim Zahawi. Now, Nadim Zahawi had been education secretary. He was appointed Chancellor of the Exchequer on Tuesday night after uh, this, uh, after Rishi Sunak resigned. Less than 24 hours later, after he took the job, he was telling Boris Johnson that Boris Johnson should go. So this was the situation. Boris Johnson, to each of them, said, I'm not going. And then Michael Gove, who, had, uh, who was the levelling up secretary, he in the mm. morning had said to Johnson that he thought he ought to go. And that evening, Boris Johnson uh, sacked him. And his uh, spokesman went out and said that, uh, Boris John that Michael Gove was a snake. So it all mm. ended up with this kind of uh, you know, maelstrom of madness in Downing Street on, uh, uh, on Wednesday night. But by the time they woke up on Thursday morning, it was all over. Chris Mason, the BBC political editor, has confirmed that Boris Johnson is going to step down. We expect a statement from the Prime Minister. What today. do you think finally convinced Johnson to go? By the time uh, Thursday morning came round, Nadim Zahawi published a letter on Treasury writing paper indicating obviously he was still remaining as Chancellor of the Exchequer, but saying that Johnson ought to go and saying he had told him so. You'd had people like David Frost, the former Brexit Secretary. You'd had Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, saying, I'm remaining as Attorney General, but Boris Johnson should go. And by the way, I'd like to be Prime Minister myself. <laughs> and the other thing was that he couldn't get people to fill 
the ministerial mm. posts, there were so many people resigning so fast that there was nobody to fill the posts. And so you had kind of departments where there was one junior minister left or kind of nobody left. And so what uh, happened in Parliament on Thursday was they had to cancel various committees because there was no minister to be there. And so so the government just became dysfunctional. It was impossible to, for the mm. thing to work. And so he just had to accept the uh, the reality of it. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. Of course, it's painful not to be able to see through so many ideas and, and projects myself. But as we've seen uh, at Westminster, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable sky broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. Hey, get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. So Johnson's now gone as party leader, but uh, he's still prime minister. Now, initially he said he wanted to stay on as prime minister until the autumn. And then that notion didn't go down entirely well with his uh, with his MPs. And he didn't mention it in his resignation speech. So what's been going on behind the scenes there? Well, he did say in his resignation speech that he was going to remain prime minister until the Conservatives had chosen a new leader. And that process can take a couple of months. On Thursday morning, he was clearly negotiating with the 1922 committee, which is the the group that represents Conservative MPs, about you know the, the terms of his departure, as it were. And some MPs thought this guy should get out, should be marched out of the building now because you wouldn't know what he'd do if he hangs around. He may be hoping something will turn up. You know, you could find a state of emergency. Anything could happen. And suddenly you're stuck with him. And so the only way to be sure that he's gone is actually if you march him out the door right away. But anyway, the problem is that you know, they had this idea that you would maybe get Dominic Raab, who's the deputy prime minister, ask him to be acting prime minister or kind of caretaker prime minister. But actually, there is no such thing. You're either the prime minister, you're not the prime minister. So you'd actually have to make Dominic Raab the prime minister with all the powers of a prime minister. Mm. And uh, then he wouldn't have been elected by anyone. And so it would all be a bit of a mess. So there, there's also kind of no precedent. So they don't like that. So, uh, so what they appear to have decided to do for now is is that uh, Boris Johnson should remain Prime Minister until such time as there is a new Conservative leader. And the Conservative leader is chosen in a two-step process. And that process is that, first of all, the MPs have a series of ballots, and out of those ballots, they choose two candidates. And those two candidates then go before the entire membership of the Conservative Party, and they have hustings up and down the country, and then... There's a postal ballot and the Conservative membership, about 100,000 of them or whatever, they all uh, choose the leader. And this process 
can take about two months because what you have is a few weeks for, for these exhaustive ballots and then uh, you have maybe six weeks of going around persuading the, the, the party faithful. So what they're talking about now privately is how could we speed this thing up? Because, I mean, you really don't mm. want to leave him there until September. And so one way would be that you speed up the business of the, uh, the, the MPs voting. And so you might say, let's just have these ballots sort of one after another in a series of days. So get that, that all over maybe by the end of next week and then go, you know, have a shorter campaign. Uh, with the membership, or else maybe what you do is just that actually you get the MPs to choose two candidates and you agree among yourselves that the candidate that got the fewest votes will then withdraw and then you don't bother going to the membership anyway. And then you've got a new leader in a couple of weeks. Okay, and I suppose it is early days, but who are the front runners to take over? Because there's a lot of people, and I have to say some of them seem pretty obscure from an Irish perspective, who've been throwing their hats into the ring already. I think the field is very open and and it's changed and it's changing all the time. So if we were speaking a couple of weeks ago, what we would have said was Nadim Zahawi was... A rising star. Lots of people were saying, watch him. He's somebody who's got a great story. He arrived uh, as a refugee at the age of 11 from Iraq, a, a British version of the American dream kind of story. He was regarded as being, you know, on the up. Someone like Rishi Sunak, it was felt he was on the way down. And so uh, he probably wasn't going to have much of a chance. That's all flipped now because Zahawi looks as if he's made a bit of a fool of himself by, um, you know, stepping in to appear to prop up Boris Johnson, only 24 hours later, then to kind of say it's time for you to go. Whereas Rishi Sunak now looks like perhaps an honourable and uh, an interesting figure again. So I would say that you would have Rishi Sunak, uh, Sajid Javid, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, clearly has ambitions. And then you've had, as I mentioned, uh, Suella Braverman, the attorney general from the right of the party. Steve Baker, who's also from the right of the party, a big Brexiteer. He said that lots of very serious people have been urging him to run and that it would be very, very disrespectful of him to ignore their entreaties. And he must really take this seriously. And then you've got Jeremy Hunt, who was uh, Mm -hmm. former foreign secretary. He was the person that Boris Johnson defeated last time. And he's obviously got ambitions. Tom Tuchel who is chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, and he is somebody who's on the liberal wing of the party, uh, although he's rather hawkish on foreign policy, has never been held a ministerial post, but he's quite popular. Uh, He has Irish connections in County Limerick, all of which is a very long way of saying it could be anyone. But the big fact about Conservative Party leadership elections is that the Conservative Party usually chooses a leader not for who they are, but for who they're not. So they choose somebody who is not X. So Theresa May became leader because she's not Boris Johnson or Michael Gove or whoever. Uh, David Cameron became leader because he wasn't David Davis. So there are all these people who emerge. And so you have to look at it in terms of the negative kind of a sieve. So what often happens is if somebody will emerge, they'll be the front runner. Everybody will decide to take them down and they'll see what happens after that. What does all this mean for Brexit? And in particular, what does it all mean for the Northern Ireland Protocol, do you think? Boris Johnson was the biggest obstacle to a deal on the protocol because his position was so weak that he couldn't afford really to accept any deal that might be available because he was depending on all these Brexiteer ultras. So anybody else who comes in will probably be in a stronger position, at least in the first while. 
Liz Truss is probably a little too invested in the protocol because she has been, you know, the architect of this bill, which is unilaterally overriding it. Suella Braveman in the same way. So if you remove the people who are sort of deeply, deeply wedded to this particular approach to dealing with the protocol of unilaterally scrapping it, I think everybody else, any other new leader, will want to have a reset of the relationship with Europe. And so they will try to do a deal. And the Europeans also will be much more inclined to make a concession to a new leader than they would have been to Boris Johnson because they thought, why throw it away on him? He's on the way out anyway. Uh, so uh, I think the danger, though, is that the on the British side, their expectations might be unrealistic. One thing the Europeans are not going to do is to renegotiate the text of the protocol itself. And so I think that the new leader is going to have to not only bring a new tone to the proceedings, but also take a more realistic approach. And I think if they do that, then there's a chance that you will have a de-escalation, that you could have some arrangement which would solve a lot of the practical issues that make people unhappy in Northern Ireland about the protocol. And then you might get the institutions back up and running in sport storment and then everyone would be happy. And then finally, Dennis, what do you think Boris Johnson's legacy will be? I think his legacy will be that he was... Uh, a superb campaigner. He was instrumental in getting the Brexit referendum result as it was. He certainly managed to turn uh, the Conservative Party's fortunes around and he won this thumping majority. I think his legacy for the, the tone of politics and political life in Britain will be very negative. I think he brought a coarse element into the political discourse and into the conduct of politics. And I think he was ultimately uh, a polarising figure and uh, his legacy of governing is that he just wasn't very good at it. I know that even if things can sometimes seem dark now, our future together is golden. Thank you all very much. Thank you. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. We'll be back on Monday.